Let's pray before we head into this today. Lord, we thank you that you are alive and at work in our world. And Jesus, we celebrate this morning all that you have done. And we pray that you would open our hearts to receive from your word today and uh, give us clarity and uh, wisdom, Lord, to live for you in these times. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. So here we are in Daniel 7. We are in many ways sort of at the center of the book. We have moved from the narrative portions, which talk about Daniel and his friends and they're seeking to live faithfully for God in Babylon. And chapter 7 uh, gathers a lot of those themes together in, in that vision. And then the rest of the book is a series of apocalyptic visions that Daniel receives and, and often doesn't know what to do with, which is interesting, right? Uh, he's often just anxious about it. And someone has to come alongside and help him. Isn't that true? When you get thinking about the future, sometimes your response is anxiety. That's Daniel. He gets anxious about it. Someone has to help him out along the way, right? They're in good company. I want to think a little bit about where we're at so far. Like I said, chapter 1 is about this theme of Daniel and his friends seeking to live faithfully in Babylon. They're taken out of Jerusalem, and they're given different names, and they have to choose to live for God in that situation. And then chapter 2... Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the, the multi-layered statue and the different parts of the statue represent, represent different nations to come. And it's, a, it's a, a confronting to Nebuchadnezzar because he has to realize that his kingdom, Babylon, will not endure forever. It's a, a mock of his pride, and he has to deal with his pride. And he does later on. So that's chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we have the fiery furnace episode with Daniel's friends where they choose to live for God and to stand for God, and they face the consequences, and yet God rescues them. And then chapters 4 and 5, you have Nebuchadnezzar finally dealing with his pride, and he repents, and his son in chapter 5 is confronted with his pride and does not repent and meets his end. And those two chapters are paired together. And if you think of, of sort of going up the slope now, chapter 6 and chapter 3 pair together. You've got the fiery furnace on one side with Daniel and his friends, and then you've got the lion's den on the other side. And in both cases, Daniel and his friends have to are confronted by the law and whether they're going to obey the law, and they choose to stand for God. They're both punished, and yet God delivers both of them. In both cases... And now today, chapter 7 is the pair of chapter 2. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the future nations that are going to come and of God's reign, which is greater than all those nations. And here in chapter 2, we get another dream about the future and about nations and about God's reign. This time, it's not Nebuchadnezzar dreaming. This time, it's Daniel dreaming. And so I want to make a couple points just about the passage itself and then talk about uh, some implications for us for living it out in our lives today. Daniel has a dream about really sort of three movements. You have the movement with the four beasts, then you've got the Ancient of Days, and then you've got the Son of Man. And again, he doesn't understand any of it until he basically goes up to an angel and, and the angel interprets it for him. And the rest of the chapter follows that pattern uh, where Daniel, poor guy, just needs some help. He's quite anxious about it, 
And in verse 28, we didn't read it, but he says, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. Which means he went real pale at the thought of all of this. But I kept the matter in my heart. And so this was quite, quite a thing to experience for him. So what does he see? So first we see the four beasts, right? And the beasts come out of the sea. This is verses 2 and 3. The four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. And now if you're thinking about the sea, and that's worth noting, because so often in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the sea is a picture of chaos and rebellion against God. You might think of Genesis, where we read the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaotic, unformed waters of sort of pre-creation and sort of hovering over it, keeping it in check, but nothing yet is ordered or made. Things are uh, empty and wasteland, but the waters are there and the Spirit is keeping them. Or you might think of Exodus, where Israel comes up against the Red Sea, which is the sure sign that they're going to meet their end because you can't make it in the sea, and Egypt is coming behind them, right? And what does God do? Very similar to Genesis 1, we have the east wind blows over the waters. And of course, in Hebrew, your word for wind and your word for spirit are the same word. It's the ruah of God. And so like the creation moment, the spirit or the wind of God, it blows over the waters. And in the place of chaos and death, we get instead God's life and order and healing and his grace. Just like in Genesis 1, God forming a, a, a place of death into a place of life. And here for Israel, he does that personally for them through the Red Sea. He blows over it, opens the sea, which is a, a pretty big move. Say the sea has no power over Yahweh. Opens the sea and they pass through. And of course, we also get the destructive character of the sea because God lets it fall back in on Egypt. And so the sea often is that picture of chaos, often throughout the Old Testament. And here, it's worth noting, where do these rebellious empires come from? They come out of the sea. It's the same idea that when we allow our, our pride and our arrogance as humans against God take root in our hearts and we go away from him into rebellion or into our hubris, which you see at the Tower of, of Babel and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we let that take root in our hearts, it can lead us to try and create something evil that, that rises up against God. And that's what we have here is we have evil nations that rise out of the sea, out of a, a, a choosing to act in defiance of God. And most interpreters see that these uh, kings, kingdoms that are represented here, the four beasts, are in parallel to what Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. And so you would have the, the lion eagle, right, in verse 4. Looks and sounds a lot like Babylon. Jeremiah actually talks about Babylon as a lion and an eagle. And you get the reference to the plucked wings, which is the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 4. And the, the change from him having a beast's mind to a mind like a man is exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 where he transforms back into being, uh, instead of growing like a beast in the field, he turns back into being uh, really a believer in Yahweh by the end. We talked about when we looked at that chapter how he actually gets to write a, a part of the Bible, which is really, really cool. Most scholars see sort of the bare beast as the Medo-Persian Empire 
and the reference to the ribs in its mouth to being uh, a call to the three countries that Medo-Persia took over in their conquest, which was Egypt and Libya and Babylon. And the leopard bird, the third one, has a combination of ferocity and speed. It sounds a lot like Greece under Alexander the Great, which by the time he was like 33, they had ran through the known world and taken it over. And, uh, and, and we get the reference to um, Dominion, verse 6. Leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And most scholars agree and, and think about how Alexander the Great, after he was finished, divided his kingdom among four generals. And that's kind of the same sort of reference you have here. That the kingdom was given to the generals. The generals had a whole run of it, and that's another story. And that leaves then the, uh, the terrifying beast in verse 7 with its sort of devouring and crushing power and if these are indeed corresponding to the same nations from chapter 2, then this is likely Rome and the ruthlessness of Rome. And we have to remember, again, no other empire at the time had the power and the longevity and the, uh, just the significance or the influence that Rome would have. And not, the world had seen nothing like it. And the, the reference to the ten horns could be a reference to its supreme power, uh, horns throughout the Old Testament often refer to various kings. Uh, so it could also be the various Caesars uh, in Rome. And actually, there's 12 Caesars from Caesar himself to Domitian, but only two of those reigned for a few months. And so the idea that it's the 10 kings in Rome actually fits really, really well. And that could well be. The little horn is a different animal, again, altogether. And some scholars think it's Antiochus Epiphanes who went in and actually desecrated the Jewish temple. And so he would be a good candidate for one who's a king, who's blaspheming God and saying great things that actually came to pass in that way. Or it could be he's some sort of antichrist figure that emerges later on in, in human history. Regardless of, of where you want to pin those nations down and who's who, you can spend some time working through that. The point is that we have arrogant, evil kings rising out of arrogant and ruthless empires that exalt themselves above God and above God's people. And what does God do about that? That's the main point here. What does God do as these empires come throughout history? Because you could, you could look at all sorts of various historical examples of this sort of thing happening. What does God do in the midst of human history when this happens and what do God's people have hope in as we live in the middle of those sorts of things. And so the vision shifts in verse 9 to the ancient of days. And in contrast to the arrogant king and the, the parade of, of sort of prideful human nations, we get the all-powerful God. And Daniel has uh, this vision of sort of a heavenly courtroom, right, where judgment is getting set up. And the Ancient of Days, which is God himself, is there. And if you think about his, his description, there's some neat things going on, right? His clothing is as white as snow, which refers often to purity, to his holiness. The hair of his head like pure wool, often a picture of sort of his wisdom, that God has the wisdom to do what is right. And then notice also his throne was fiery flames, this is verse 9, and its wheels were burning fire. So we have the God who is holy and pure 
and wise, but this is also God the divine warrior riding his fire chariot in the judgment place. He has the power to deal with evil. And so not only is he all wise, but he's all powerful and he's ready to judge the earth and he can do it in the way that none of us can. He can do it in the way that is good and right and holy uh, where you and I would fail as the judge, right? God alone has that wisdom and the power and the righteousness to see that through. And books are opened up, which represents sort of God's record of deeds. And in God's judgment, the little horn is silenced and the beast is destroyed. And God reigns from his throne as the good and faithful creator king. Awesome. Excellent. Right? It's like brilliant. Love that. And then we get verse 13. And we get sort of the third part of this vision. And it's the arrival of someone called the Son of Man. Look again at verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now that phrase, son of man, uh, this isn't the only spot in the Bible it shows up. It actually shows up in Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel, son of man means human, just mere human, like a person, just a guy, right? Just, 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 a, just a guy. Uh, it doesn't mean much more than that. And yet here in Daniel, the Son of Man seems to be more than just a guy, right? He's coming with the clouds of heaven, meaning in some sense this human person is divine. He has some sort of authority that's greater than being mere human. And then we read he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom which is greater than Rome or greater than Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon because in verse 14 we read that he will rule over all peoples and all nations and all languages and unlike Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome we read that his kingdom will not pass away there's a permanence to the kingdom of the son of man this kingdom won't be destroyed and that language of God restoring a kingdom is also the sort of language we see elsewhere in the Old Testament describing Israel, or at least faithful Israel. You think of the Psalms where there's mentions of the nations coming to Israel and coming to worship God, the nations streaming together back to Zion. And so this Son of Man is a representative of faithful Israel, but he's also a person. It's like he's the faithful king that was promised to King David, that someone from your line will faithfully live for God. And so he's not just a good Israelite leader, and he's not an angel because he's a person. And that is the shocking claim. All of that imagery and promise held together is the shocking claim that Jesus made about himself when he showed up and started doing his ministry. And what is his favorite title to refer to himself as? son of man and he does that intentionally because he makes those who encounter him have to choose is he just a person like son of man in ezekiel or is he the son of man who is so much more from daniel 7 and jesus very intentionally leaves that open for his hearers what sort of son of man do you say i am right what sort of son of man 
will I be? And he is indeed fully human, right? We believe Jesus is the word made flesh. And he's also the faithful Israelite. That's why he goes through the waters of baptism, just like Israel going through the Red Sea. And then he goes out into the desert where he's tempted by Satan, just like Israel going out into the wilderness where they face temptations about whether to be faithful to Yahweh or not. And where Israel fails, Jesus, the true faithful Israelite, succeeds and comes back into his ministry. And where Israel was meant to be that faithful son, uh, Jesus fulfills that as the faithful king. And so it's fitting then at the end of Jesus' ministry, at his mock trial in Mark 14, look what's asked of him. And look how he answers. This is Mark 14, verse 61. Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, which means the anointed one? Are you the anointed one, the son of the blessed? Whose son are you? Are you saying you're the faithful Israelite? And what does Jesus say? He says, I am, which is loaded with all the Exodus imagery of God revealing his name. I am. But also, what does Jesus refer to? He refers back to Daniel 7, back to our text this morning. You will see the Son of Man, there's the Daniel 7 bit, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus takes the Daniel 7 passage and says, it's me. And when you see me lifted up onto the clouds of heaven, it's not in the way you expect. You're going to see it at the cross. You want to see God lifted up and exalted? Here's how I'll do it. You want to see the glory and the love of God made real in this world? It's not by just coming and taking over Rome. It's not by just leading some sort of spiritual reform. It's by going to the cross and dying for your sins. And I will be the king, but I'm not going to wear a golden crown. I'm going to take the thorns on my head. And that's the kind of God we serve. This is the God who dies for you. Jesus shows that at the cross. And what is the, the high priest tears his clothes because he knows what Jesus is saying. He's, he knows Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. He tears his clothes and says, what further witnesses do we need? We have blasphemy. You're calling yourself divine. And you can't do that. Of course, it's true. But they're not willing to accept it. And so Jesus claims to be the son of man from Daniel 7. To be the future king the son of man who was born of Israel and yet coming on the clouds, divine and lifted up, who gives his life for all who will repent and believe to come into his kingdom. Not a passing kingdom like Babylon, not a ruthless kingdom like Rome, but a new kingdom for a new people of God. And so that's Daniel's vision. You've got the four beasts. You've got the Ancient of Days, who's going to deal with the evil empires in the world. And then you've got the Son of Man, who comes on the clouds, who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom, verse 14, and whose kingdom will not pass away. And he comes and reigns alongside the Ancient of Days, which is also striking. How can you have a person uh, up where God goes? And the New Testament answers that question, right? You think of Revelation where you've got God on the throne, and who else is there? The Lamb. That's Daniel 7 coming to pass. And that's why it's so important that Jesus ascends and that Jesus bodily ascends because now there's a human in heaven who represents you. 
And that's why when you pray, it's not just to some sort of empty thing somewhere. We're praying because we have a great high priest who's a human who knows our weakness just as we uh, just as we have weakness, yet without sin. And he can represent us before the Ancient of Days. That's who we believe when we talk about Jesus. Ascended in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. That's what he's doing. He's interceding for us. He's present. There's a human in the Godhead. And it's Jesus. Some of the questions, of course, other than the very cool stuff about Jesus, is uh, when is this taking place? What are we doing, Daniel? What's happening with this? And people go back and forth. Is some of this fulfilled already? If it's Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, then it seems kind of fulfilled already. Or is it some other future kingdoms down the line? Um, And the reality is we just don't have enough data to really settle that completely. So you'll find people who will slot in different kingdoms and different people in different slots. And that's fine. Uh, you can do that. The idea of a nation and a ruler rising up that blasphemes God, like I said, can fit just about any time period. We've had some sort of evil empire in the world with a ruler that blasphemes God and does all kinds of terrible things. That's pretty common stock for the history of the world, I think. We can get very caught up in those details, but I want to point us back again to the heart of this passage. We didn't read this section, but I want you to look at verses 26 and 27. Because Daniel's really concerned about the fourth beast, and look at what the angel ends up saying to him. He gives some instruction, but then the angel points him back again to the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, 26 and 27. He says, but the court shall sit in judgment. This is talking about... um, the, the beast and the horn. He says, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion, this is verse 27, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And so even the angel himself points Daniel back to this idea that, yes, there are kingdoms of the earth that will oppose the saints of God, but it is limited by God. God is still the Ancient of Days on the throne. And beyond whatever violence or hatred or struggle that we might see in the world or that we might encounter in our own lives in various ways, I don't know what tomorrow will bring, We enjoy great freedom in Canada right now. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But the truth is that God sits in heavenly court. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. And we have here the promise from God that these various beasts, whether you slot them in as ancient empires or you think of one of them as Nazi Germany or whatever you might want to do with that, is almost beside the point. Because there will always be evil empires. And there will always be evil world leaders. But the point is that God reigns above them. And God at the end will deal with any empire that emerges. They will be either tamed or they'll be destroyed. And at the end of it all, evil will be vanquished. 
And so that message can give us a lot of hope today. And that really captures a lot of the themes from Daniel so far as we've kind of gone through this series, that, that there's faithfulness that we can pursue despite persecution that can come. Right? Daniel 1 and 3 and 6 are all about that. And there's hope for us if we are suffering for our faith, that we can stand and trust that God is good. And chapters 4 and 5 tell us why God's people do suffer. And that's because evil empires do arise in the world. That just, that does happen. And yet we're encouraged by chapters 2 and 7, especially these two dreams, that those evil kingdoms will come to an end. And God will reign. And so there's a patience here for believers to cling to, to know God's got us even if things around me look kind of bleak. That God's still in charge. He'll set things right. And the kingdom that will come in its fullness was inaugurated by Jesus at the cross and the tomb. And that's why we can celebrate the salvation and the life that's come for us today. And yet we can also pray, Lord, your kingdom come. We know it's here now, but we need it more and more. We long for the fullness of your kingdom to come, where you will set your world to right at long last. We know that those evil empires can still rise. And we also, and here's the trick, I think, about reading some of these passages. It's so easy to think, oh, those evil empires out there somewhere. Aren't those bad? But as you sit with this passage for a bit, I feel like God can say, yeah, what about the evil that rises up in you? Because the truth is, any of us as mere humans have a propensity to turn to evil in our own hearts. We've all got our own sin and our own brokenness. And I think that's why this passage in the big scale reminds me that God is sovereign over history and over creation. And yet in a small scale, the passage confronts me with my own sin and my own arrogance and my own sense of pride. It makes me realize, God, I still need you to come and sanctify and do your work in me. Because I'm, it's easy to cast myself as the good guy in this story. But I can also contribute to the brokenness in the world. And we all can. And we all do. And so it's worth us saying, God, I recognize my own tendencies towards sin. I recognize the slipperiness of my own heart. And I need you to come and do a work, a sanctifying work in me. I need the Son of Man who comes with the clouds to come and make his home in me and set up his kingdom in here. Not just out there, but to come and do that inside of me. And so whether you're reading something online or hearing from a friend about the latest political or ideological agenda that's really far from God, and it reeks with sin and pride and evil, as much as that stuff might bother you, remember that there are those who will make war on the saints, but God prevails. Those reigns will not endure, and God is faithful. And when we are tempted to go the way of the world, which means to give in to our own self-interests and our own sin and our own pride, whatever it might be, we too need to heed the warning of this text which says don't follow the ways of evil empires because God will bring them down 
and our allegiance is not to them, but to the Son of Man. And when you see uh, things in the future and you feel certain about what could be happening, remember that dear old Daniel needed some help interpreting his vision. And sometimes what we feel is so sure, we need the wisdom of another to come alongside and help us. And that made me think about as we head to the table this morning is to recognize again, like I said, the, the sinfulness of our own hearts. And we do not always get it right. And I was thinking even as, as your pastor, I do not always get it right. I've tried to lead as best as I can, but I have my own faults and my failings, and I know that we do not always get that perfectly. That as the body of Christ, we're often a work in progress. And so I want to be the first to say, as I preach about examining the brokenness in our own hearts, is I want to say again, if I have, with my words, over the last 10 years as your pastor, have hurt you, or have brought brokenness, or have damaged you, or have brought division in some way, then I want to ask for your forgiveness. Because I recognize that there's sinfulness in my own heart, and I'm still a work in progress. And I understand the responsibility as, as the lead pastor that a lot of my decisions affect all of you, and I know that, I know that well. And so I would ask that if I've caused you pain in any way over the years, that you would forgive me. I know that uh, I'm quick to want to extend that forgiveness to others as well. I know we can get frustrated with each other. I know it's easy to hold on to anger or to bitterness. But I was reminded as we come to the table today, that Jesus calls us to be quick to confess our sins. James talks a lot about that as well. And traditionally, taking communion includes this moment as a congregation. We don't really, it's not really part of our sort of Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, but um, in other traditions, there's this moment. If you've ever been to uh, different services, you'll have probably seen it where the congregation passes the peace to each other. And often that just becomes a welcome time where you shake people's hands. But the point is that you try and make things right with each other before you come to the table. That's where that comes from. And so you extend the peace of Christ to try to mend broken horizontal relationships so that you can come with a sort of a clean heart before the God in sort of the vertical relationship of life with him. It comes from Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 21 to 24 is a really, um, it's a really convicting passage. And it's about the issues we can hold with each other. If you're married, this is especially convicting sometimes because it's easy to hold on to stuff with, between you and your spouse. And uh, the Bible tells us not to do that. But in Matthew 5, Jesus is telling a parable. And in verse 23, he says, So if, you, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And then you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. And basically the idea is this, is don't let offenses with others 
take such a root in your heart. And don't think that it doesn't affect your, your life and relationship with God. Try to make that stuff right before you come and worship. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians, um, talking about examining our hearts when we come to the table. So as we come to the table today, let's just remember a couple things. The first thing, again, that from Daniel's vision, that evil can rise in our hearts, but we don't have to let it stay there. And we can ask the Son of Man to come up and root out that anger and that bitterness that's easy to keep in our hearts. And as we come to the table, we, we are coming because the Son of Man has come and given his life for us and says, come and eat and drink and make your life about this, about my death and resurrection. Let that take deeper root in your heart than the, the, the brokenness that you will experience with others, right? Let that be the first and foremost thing. And so as we come to the table today, I want us to uh, kind of bear those things in mind as we come. And afterwards, I, I think it would be helpful if we just take some time to linger. And, and if you feel that there's someone, whether it's in church or maybe it's someone who's not here at all, but this has brought to mind the need and the importance of trying to mend relationships. If there's someone that you need to go talk to, I encourage you to do that and uh, to extend forgiveness to each other. Um, and let's allow the Holy Spirit to do that healing work in us because that's his heart for us, right? It's easy to go the way of an evil empire, uh, to let that stuff take root in us. But Jesus calls us to forgiveness and to life. And so let's take that, uh, that time as we come to the table uh, to allow the Spirit to speak to us. I remember one time really thinking and praying about communion when I was in school, and I was convicted of, of a relationship that I had let just kind of slide. And I felt really that the Spirit was saying, you need to reconnect with that person before you come to the table again and try and make things right. Um, so I've lived that out, and I encourage you to ask the Lord, uh, Lord, is there anything in my heart I need to give to you? As I come to the table, or, or having come to the table, to now take some steps uh, to live that out well. So let's pray and, uh, and prepare our hearts to come and, and receive today. Jesus, we thank you that you are at work again in our world. And just the promise this morning from Daniel 7, that even when things look really, really dark, that Jesus, you... Uh, promise your faithfulness in your life as the Son of Man, the one who comes and deals with evil empires. And not just the world out there, but the more difficult word is to remember, Lord, you deal with the sin and evil in our own hearts. And Jesus, today, we want to confess our sins and lay those things down. Lord, we're sorry for the ways in which we've hurt you, the ways in which we've hurt one another, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that you would sanctify and purify our hearts. Lord, that you would mend what is broken in us. And even as a church, Lord, we recognize we're not always perfect. We're far from it. So, Lord, would you come and heal uh, wounded, woundedness even in our own body. And, Lord, we pray that just as you forgive us, you would help us to forgive others, especially when we've been wronged and 
and and and it's been a legitimate hurt that we carry. Lord, would you come? And as we come to this table, would you come and minister to our hearts, Lord, by the power of your spirit, as we eat and drink and remember who you are, that you would fill us afresh today. We ask this in your name.